Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. Good morning, Faith family. Hey, I want to introduce to you our speaker today who not only is our youth pastor here at Faith Bible Chapel, he's my children's youth pastor. And I'm so honored that he pastors our teenagers here in this body and your families. He's such a dear friend, but he's also an incredible partner to do ministry with here at Faith Bible Chapel. And so I just want to say, hey, Pastor Evan, we love you. I love you. We're grateful for you. And Faith, come on, can we welcome Pastor Evan as he comes to share the word with you. God bless you, Evan. Welcome to church. I, uh, are you happy to be here? Because I am. Ooh, oh my goodness, okay. I like dancing. Um, all right, well, I'm glad you guys are here today. I am super pumped. We are family. That's right, baby. We are family, and uh, I am just super, super pumped. I'm the youth pastor, so I can get away with stuff like that. And, um, and so I'm just, I'm so glad to be here. I, can you, I'm, I had too much coffee. I've already had like a nitro cold brew from Starbucks, and so I'm like, Zzz! so it's going to be a really good day today. Um, so we're continuing our study in Romans um, with the really, really long title, so let's try, let's read it. Let's read, I'm going to read it. There we go. Living the no condemnation, spirit-filled, power-infused, more than a conqueror. If God is for me, who can be and gets me? Supernatural. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Kind of life. Woo! Booyah. Awesome. Well, I am just super excited. So I'm going to just, we're going to dive straight in today because I have a lot to say. So I hope you had your coffee and you're ready to go. Hope you have your pen and your paper and you're ready to take notes because I believe truly that note takers are world changers. And so get out your pad and your, and your pen and your iPhone or your iPad or whatever other sad off-brand device that you have. And uh, let's just, uh, let's get into this. Let's get right into this. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. I've titled this, uh, 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 this message, uh, From Slaves to Heirs. All right, so let's, uh, let's get right into this. But before I do, I want to just say, thank you for joining us online. Thank you for coming and viewing. Let's give them a round of applause real quick. Also, uh, if you're viewing this at Jeffco Jail too, we love you, seriously. Thank you so much. You are part of the family. We are family, all right? I hope some of them were like dancing over there. All right, anyway, here we go. Verse 12 in chapter eight. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be also, also be glorified with him. Oh, that's a great verse. All right, so here we go. Any Back to the Future fans? Here we go. Let's get into our DeLorean. Let's go back in time. Whew, great Scott, Marty. All right, and let's go back in time 2,000 years to ancient Rome, okay? Let's go to ancient Rome 2,000 years ago. And you see, because Paul... Back then, when he's writing this book to the Church of Romans, he's using something that the Romans would understand in their culture to help them understand what Christ did for us. So here's what he says. He, he says, back then, and I'm saying this to you, back then there were Roman families, there were Roman families who, if they had the influence and the ability and the finances, what they would do is they would adopt children who were orphans and slaves and bring them into their family. That was a thing back then. 
And so what would happen is this awesome adoption process, uh, there would be a huge party. There'd be gatherings. They'd bring all their friends and family. They'd prepare like this epic meal, right? It wouldn't be no TV dinner meal. It'd be like a nice meal, all right? And so they'd bring everybody together and they'd say, look, we've adopted this, this, we've adopted this new child. And so then this, this child, they were, they, were, they were free from their slavery. They would literally come and they'd have they'd come with a document that would say any kind of crime that they had ever committed or any kind of debt that they owed to society or any kind of financial thing, whatever. And that Roman family, that Roman family that adopted them would pay for all the debts, bring them into their home, sit them at the table, and whatever inheritance that that Roman family possessed would then become the ex-slave's inheritance. Does this sound a little familiar to you? Does this sound like something somebody did for you on a cross 2,000 years ago? All right, cool. Um, because it is, right? And so this is what Paul is trying to help them understand is that Christ has adopted us. He has adopted us. You see, you and I, this is a very personal message. You see, you and I, when before we were adopted into Christ's family, you and I were slaves. We were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to death. We were on a one-way path to sin and destruction and always living in fear and always living in worry and anxiousness and hopelessness. We were orphans. We were lost. We were chained to things of this world. But Christ, but Christ came and set us free. But Christ came and paid the penalty, paid the debt and released us. Can I get an amen on that one? And not only does he free us from that, then he makes us heirs. He gives us a brand new identity, a brand new identity that not only is like, hey, you know, your old past is gone now, good for you. No, he sets us at the same level as Christ because now he's in us. Did you know it says in this passage that for whom we cry, Abba, Father? Did you know that Christ was the only one that called God Abba? No one else called God Abba. Only Jesus did. And so now Paul is saying is like, look, we have that same kind of relationship. We have that same kind of closeness with the Lord now, whom we can call Abba, Father. He gave us a new identity. His righteousness is now in us. We are fellow heirs with Christ. He comes and he gives us a seat at the table full of grace and glory and wonder and nurture and all sorts of awesome things that God has to provide. He freed us and gave us a new inheritance. And this affects everything. When Christ replaced our dumpster fire-ness grossness of sin and replaced it with his holy, gracious perfection, it affects everything. 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 It affects our choices, our relationships, our expectations, our desires, our responses to hardship, literally everything. You see, the gospel applies to everything that you and I do. And in one way in particular, I believe it really affects, and I want you to get this this morning, is it really affects how we view ourselves. Because I believe one of the biggest battles that you'll ever face is in between your own two ears. All the things that you hear, all the lies that you tell yourself, or the lies that you believe, or what the enemy tries to put in your head and say, you know what, you kind of remember this when you did that and you, you kind of messed up and failed. No. You got to kick that crap in the teeth. I'm the youth pastor. I can get, I'm just kidding. We got to view ourselves the way we've, he views us. In Mark 1.11, there's this beautiful, amazing passage where Jesus is baptized in the river by John and he comes up out of the water and, and, the, and, the, and he does a Fabio that's when he comes up out of the water. And then the spirit comes down on him like a dove and then booming out of the sky, God says, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The way the father views Jesus is the same way he views you. Not only does he love you, he likes you. 
Not only does he like you, he's pleased with you. He's proud of you. He goes, man, look at that. That's my boy. That's my girl. Bring it in. Mm, I'm so proud of them. Have you seen them? Look at them. Look at this boy. Look at this girl. I love them so much. Let that resonate that he's pleased with us. That when we're adopted into his family, not only does he sit us at the table, he shows us off. Like, look, love them so much. This means a lot of things. If that's how Christ views us, if that's how the Father views us, we don't have to perform anymore. We don't have to compare. We don't, we don't have to run around and see and try to get other people to like us or whatever. No, he's pleased with us. He's pleased with us. We no longer have to run around looking for purpose and meaning inside of us or outside of us. We don't have to chase things of this world and hope that they'll satisfy us. He's saying, no, 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 look, my identity, my satisfaction, my purity is now in you. You are made whole. You don't need anything else. How great is that? And look, he didn't, he didn't buy you and break the chains off of you just to set you on the mantle and go, look, I got another one. No, he wants to sit you down at the table. He wants to get to know you. He wants to nurture you. He wants to sit across from the table and have a conversation with you and say, oh my gosh, I love you. Here, have some more of me. This is what will satisfy you. This is what's gonna please you in the long run. Don't, don't look at these other things of this world. Come and eat. Come and find joy and lasting wholeness and love here. Like a loving father, he wants to come and get to know you while you're here on earth. And then forever after we, after we die. And so I'm the youth pastor, so I'm going to put a very shameless plug here. Um, so... FSM is this amazing, is this awesome youth group that I get to be a part of here at Faith. And look, this is, this, this is, this is the whole reason why we do anything. It's because, look, I, I, I am really, got, Denver is hurting. Our teenagers are broken. They're hurting. Some of them have found hope in Christ, but there's a lot who haven't. And so they look for truth and authenticity and satisfaction and identity in places that they were never meant to look for it. And I'm sick of it. I want them to understand that they have a seat at the table, that Jesus loves them, that there's all these other things in the earth that promise satisfaction but only enslave them. And Jesus is like, come sit at the table. I want teens to just to learn truth, to live truth, and to love that truth and go and share it with others and point others and go, guys, I've eaten at the Lord's table. Come join me. That's why FSN does anything. And listen, we're going to have this really crazy awesome event that's going to knock the socks off your teenagers called Narcamp. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have a dancing squirrel. We're going to have crazy worship. We're going to have color wars. We're going to have Chick-fil-A. It's going to be nuts. So go to that. Even if you're not a teenager and you're a teenager heart and you're like, that sounds nice. You should go. <laughs> but we do things like that because of this. Listen, if we have to, you, if we have to have somebody dress up like a dancing squirrel to get a teenager into church, I'm going to do it. Because they need to learn that Jesus loves them. Also, I'm uh, taking resumes for anyone who wants to be that dancing squirrel. <laughs> Not only does he give us rights to the table, he also gives us refrigerator rights, baby. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like you have people in your life who they can come into your house and they can open the fridge and they go, mmm, you got some cheese sticks? Ooh, yeah. Not, not the off-brand. You got the real craft kind. I'm going to, yes. It would be weird if someone you didn't know, you invited them over for the first time and they just went straight to your fridge and they go, hmm, 2%? Now you could be drinking whole, right? 
it would be weird. If I've done that to your house, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he loves us. And I think we also do something else that um, we really need to work on. And you see, because when, we, when we're adopted, I think a lot of times we live as if we're not adopted. And so what happens is we, we, we think to ourselves, oh, Evan, this is nice. I get what you're saying. This is really, you know, whatever. But if Jesus really knew. And you know what's, or some of you are like, yeah, Jesus does know. I don't, and I really think he kind of looks for any opportunity to hold me at arm's length. Nothing has ever been more false ever. You see, when Jesus adopts us, when we are brought into the family, when we're given an inheritance, when we're bought with the blood of Jesus, nothing casts us out. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can say, ah, no, yeah. Listen, when we're inherited into the kingdom of God, God doesn't hold your adoption and your inheritance over you like, nope. Yeah, here you go. Oh, nope, you got to try a little bit better. Yeah, come on, you almost got it. No, no. But we live that way sometimes. Or we think that's how God views us. We look for all kinds of ways for fallen, we look for all kinds of ways for him to hate us and think that he doesn't like us. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I didn't say it, Jesus did. I will never cast out. We can never, ever present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. Listen, when you buy something at the store, you don't leave it there. You don't. There would be nuts, especially at Target. I'm looking at some of you. Jesus bought us with his blood. Why on earth would he look for reasons to get rid of us? Why on earth would he ever look for reasons to go, eh, I like this guy more than that guy? There's nothing we can do that will ever make God love us any more or any less. I have a two-year-old named Ezra. Some of you know him very well. He's about this tall. He's two years old, and he weighs as much as a four-year-old, so he's a brick wall. He's already a linebacker for the Broncos. You should see him. It's great. Some of you laugh. It's, I'm serious. Um, He's huge. He's just a big, bulky kid, and I love him to death. I'm going to reference him a lot today. Um, but Ezra really likes water, and every Friday morning, my family and I, we take him to uh, Confluence Park in downtown uh, Denver, and there's this river, and you can wade into the river, and he plays with sand, and he throws rocks in there, and he just has a ball. But every now and then, he, he looks across the river, and it, and it gets really deep and rushing over there, and, and he goes, Dada, that way, that way, Dada, that way, because he likes to swim and, you know, pretend like he's getting drifted away into a current and stuff. And, and he goes, Dada, that way, Dada, Dado. So I grab his hand and, and so we walk and we're walking into the river and it gets a little bit deeper and then it's past her ankles and then it's up to my calves. And, but you know what winds up happening? At some point, it's no longer him holding on to me, it's me holding on to him. You see, because even though that boy is thick and heavy, he still floats. And so I'm, I've decided that I'm never going to, if I've decided I'm not going to let him go, I ain't letting go. You see, the father does the same for us. And we're like that of a two-year-old trying to hold on to Jesus in the midst of the storms and the junk and the mess and the circumstances of life. But his tender grip is never letting go. Psalm 63, 8 expresses this beautiful truth that says, my soul clings to you, Lord. Your right hand upholds me. Think about it. There's nothing we can do that will ever release us from Christ's tender grip. Listen, 
for us, truly, if you've been saved, if you've, adopted, if you've accepted Christ into your life, if you've been adopted, you know what would it would take for you to fall short of the loving embrace of Christ? Jesus himself would have to be pulled out of heaven and put back into the grave. And guess what? That ain't happening because my God's alive. Jesus is alive. Holy Spirit is living inside me. He's conquered death. He ain't going back into that grave. And neither are you. Remember these truths. Bask in this. Let this wash over you. And you see, the, Paul says something else really cool in this. He talks about how the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does that mean? You see, back in the Roman, ancient Rome, what would happen was is when this child would get adopted, there would be witnesses. There'd be witnesses that would watch the party and the legal rights happen and everything go down. So that way, when that ex-slave, when that ex-orphan was walking around ancient Rome and somebody went, hey, aren't you a slave? Hey, 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 wait a second. Does your slave master know you're out here? And they would say, no, no, no. I'm not a slave anymore. Look, I have these witnesses to prove it. Except the difference between an earthly witness and a heavenly witness is that the Holy Spirit isn't going around saying, hey, everybody, uh, Evan's a believer now, just so y'all know, okay? No, he's reminding me of who I am. He's reminding me all the time of who you are. Or he's reminding you all the time of who you are. And I really want to touch on this because I think it's really easy for us to forget who we are. To forget who we are. You see, I think we, we all suffer from this thing that, that we don't even know we have. Right? Like, and we do it every day. And we don't even realize we're doing it. It's when we live, it's when, it's when we've been adopted, but we live like slaves. And we've I've kind of coined this term, identity amnesia. It's when you forget who you are. It's when you forget who you are. You forget who we belong to. We forget where our identity is. We forget that Christ has freed us from having to find purpose in this world. We forget that we've been adopted and we do it so often we don't even realize we do it. And you don't want to know how we get it? We get it from a seed of disbelief. We get it from a seed of disbelief. It's when you and I believe the lie you're fine without God. You're fine. You do you. You're fine. It's what Eve believed when she was in the garden. When Satan was like, did God really say, did he really say you die? Really? Really? Or it's when David, when he was on his balcony and he saw Bathsheba on the roof and, she, and he thought to himself, hmm, that lady's fine. I want to take her and make her mine and kill her husband. He wasn't thinking at the time, oh, God, you know, eh, you've been kind of falling short lately, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take her as my bride. No, what he thought was in that moment, that woman would satisfy him more than Christ. That's identity amnesia. When we think something else will provide this, when really it provides this. And we, we do it all the time. We put our identity in other things. We put, we put our hope and our purpose into other things that we, we were never meant to put our hope and, and faith in. And what happens is, is then we, we worship it. It becomes an idol. We're always worshiping something. That's how God made us. We're worshipers. And so when we're not worshiping Christ, guess what? Something is going to fit that spot. Something is going to fit that spot. Maybe, and it could be a good thing or bad thing. But it's when we like it or want it or think it'll satisfy us too much. 
good or bad things, when we put it in the place where Christ should be. This could look like all sorts of things. It could look like success. Success isn't a bad thing. It's great to be successful, but it's not great when you put your identity in it. Because then what ends up happening is you put your identity into success, guess, what go, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be fearful all the time of being a failure. Or maybe you put your identity into your job, and so all the time you're fearful of losing it, and so you're fearful of losing it, and so you got to try harder to get that promotion. you got to work overtime and miss family time with your family. It happens all the time. Or maybe you put it in comfort, or maybe you put it in time, or maybe you put it in how people view you, or maybe you put it in your spouse. You know how many times I've heard people go, oh, he's just wonderful. Or, oh, she's just perfect. She makes me so happy. It's like we're connected. Everything she does, she's never wrong. Everything he does, he's always Mr. Right. Who did you marry? The fourth person of the Trinity? Oh my goodness. What? No, you married a sinner. And so then what happens is, is when you put your identity in your spouse, you become disappointed with them a lot. Or maybe for me, for me, I I, um, (laughs) am... I kind of put my identity sometimes in my house. And right now, my house looks like a dumpster fire that's under construction. Because I'm remodeling, and I'm really bad at it, so it's great. And, and so, uh, so I'm already kind of stressed. And, and so going back to Ezra. Brick. Going back to Ezra. All right, so Ezra um, is the king of the crumb. He's the king of crumbs. Everywhere he goes, it's, he's like Hansel and Gretel. Just crumbs everywhere. Crumbs, 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 crumbs everywhere. Crumbs on the table. Crumbs under the table. Crumbs stuck to the table. Crumbs. I never walk around my house barefoot because when I feel crumbs underneath my feet, it's horrible. And here's what's happened. There's crumbs everywhere. So then some of you ladies are like, preach. And so, so then what's happened is then all the ants in the neighborhood have found out. And now all the ants are like, oh my gosh, guys, you got to go to 7161 Allen Drive. The place is a treasure trove. <laughs> and so one day I walk into my house and I open up and what do I see? I see a six-lane freeway going to my couch of ants. <laughs> horrible. There was a guy, there was an ant taking an Uber to work. It was horrible. <laughs> I walk and I follow the six-lane freeway to the couch and I move the couch and what do I see? I see a tiny ant metropolis. Little skyscrapers and a, and, a, and a helicopter reporting on the news. True fact. It was like Ant Mageddon. It was horrible. And I was like, crumbs. If it weren't for the crumbs. And but we do this, and it's funny, but it's also kind of sad if we think about it. Because I have let something as little as crumbs affect the way I treat my son. Because I've put my identity into into what the house looks like. And we do this all the time. I do it all the time. When we worship creation and put our identity in things of creation, it makes us fearful, it makes us angry, makes us discontent and sorrowful, wishing life was better. Is this all it has to offer? Always having to look for the next thing. Guys, we will never, ever, 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 ever find life in creation only in the creator. So here's what happens. When we put our identity in other things, there's this passage, passage in Galatians where Paul is warning the church of Galatia. He says, hey, look, formerly when you did not know God, guess what? You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Christ gives us a new identity, but when we, when we live out identity amnesia, when we forget who we really are, when we live like slaves when we're adopted, it's like we're grabbing this stuff and putting it back on. 
getting up out of the table, out of Christ's goodness, getting up and going, you know what? This is better. It'd be like that new adopted child who was in a rich, Roman, wealthy family getting up off the table and going, you know what? Actually, being whipped and enslaved was pretty great. What? But that's what's happening when we put our identity into other things. It's like putting these back on. We're free, but we live like slaves. It's insanity. It's nuts. I grew up in Missouri, all right? Whoop, whoop. One guy in first service wooed, and I was like, you go, bro. Missouri, 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 whatever. I've heard it all. You guys make me feel really good after moving here. Okay. I grew up in Missouri, and so we had chickens, you know, because that's what we do in Missouri. And, and we lived in the woods, right, because that's what you do in Missouri. And, um, and, and there was fo- foxes and coyotes and, and raccoons and possums that would try and kill and eat our chickens. And so we would set up traps to, to get rid of these guys so that they wouldn't kill our chickens, because I like eggs. And you know what I've never seen? I've never seen a trapped raccoon who had been set free go, that looks like fun, trap. I would call animal control and go, you need to get rid of this thing now because it's weird. Or National Geographic or something. It's just, it's not normal. It's insanity. I've never seen one do it, yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we live like we're adopted? How do we live like we're adopted? How do we stop just going back to the things that we think will satisfy us and just finally sit and rest in God's goodness? How do we do that? Let's turn to Psalms chapter 27. That's this really beautiful yet also scary psalm. Very, very, very dangerous, life-threatening psalm. In Psalms 27, verse 1, it says this. This is David writing. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil doers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. You see, this psalm, along with Romans 8, shows us where restful and lasting identity comes from. It's in trouble. It's in trouble like this People are wanting to kill David. They want his head. And it's during hardships in our lives where it's revealed where identity is placed. And not just, not just crazy, horrible stuff in the everyday circumstances when your teen mouths off to you for the upteenth time, when your boss says you need to do a better job again, when, when, when your husband didn't do the dishes or, or heaven forbid he left a wet towel on the bathroom floor again, I don't care, but it comes up every single day. Where we place our identity shows up when we put, when we put our thing, when, when hardship comes. Our identity is revealed when hardship comes. I want to look at something, if we can go back to the first one. You see, the Bible never just defines who God is. It redefines you and me. It never just defines who God is. It redefines you and me. You see, because the Lord is light. He is. 
The Lord is salvation. The Lord is a stronghold. But there's a big thing that David understands in this passage. He understands that God is an impersonal God. He's a personal God. And so now the Lord is my light. Mine. My light. My salvation. My stronghold. He's mine. He's in me. I belong to him. During this passage, and I love to say this all the time. I like to say it. Here we go. You ready? The scholars believe, the scholars believe uh, that David wrote this during or after one of two things in his life happened. Either one, they think he wrote it whenever Saul, the king, was trying to chase him and kill him. You see, because Saul hated David. He was jealous of David. He didn't like David. He wanted his head on a spit. And so he's searching for David, trying to find him and kill him. Or they believe that David wrote this after he's already crowned king and he's had a son named Absalom and that son has grown up and now that same son, he wants the throne. So who's got to go? David. He's got to be killed. So now put yourself in, those, in, in David's shoes where your own beloved son is after to kill you. Take your throne. How sad. So much injustice in those two outcomes and those two stories. But what does David pray for? What does David want? I mean, if we really think about it and look at it, it says, and later on, it says that he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon him. Look, if people were trying to chase me and kill me, that wouldn't be my prayer. You know what my prayer would be? I need a bigger spear, Jesus. They got guns, I need a bigger gun. Or, 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 Lord, you created the sun, you created volcanoes, I know what you did to the prophets of Baal that one time, you just killed them, boom. you just, boom, lights of fire, Lord, I know you like to melt stuff, so can you do that to them? you just like, be super great. Or maybe, uh, maybe I'd probably pray something like, hey, can you just take me out of this situation, send me to like... Hawaii, that would be super nice. That's what I need right now. You see, that's, he, David never prayed to a, a suck me up and put me somewhere else, like a, and then a prayer. A, and prayer. You and I, we pray a lot of prayers. Just remove me from the situation. Just make things better. Just get rid of this circumstance. But what does Paul, or excuse me, David pray for? You would just be in the temple. Lord, if I could just dwell in the house, dwell in your house all the days of my life. If I could just gaze on your face. Just, just bask in your beauty. Oh, that'd be really nice right now. That's what I need. David knows that there's only one of such amazing beauty. He's more, beauty, he's more beautiful than every ugly thing you or I will ever face. And grace has connected us with that beauty. How awesome. None of these ugly things that you face are ever going to be ultimate. His beauty and holiness are ultimate. We must look at ourselves through the lens of the almighty, beautiful Savior. Because it's only then that your heart will find rest. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. When you, when you look through the lens of how God views you, it gives you rest. What that means is, is then you really need to look at yourself the way that Christ views you. So what does that mean? You need to really, and I really need to stop condemning myself. You see, it could be really easy for David to, to, to have just focused on his sin. Or, or man, Jesus, if, God, if I had just done this, or if, I had, or if I had not said this thing, or if I had just freely given Absalom the throne, or if I had just done this in this way, then I wouldn't be in this mess. Stop. Stop. Meditate on his goodness. 
We need to stop meditating on our sin, our weakness and failure. We need to stop dwelling on the brokenness of ourselves and the people around us and the world around us and the politics around us. Stop focusing on the corruption and downfall of this world. Listen, how dare we, and I mean this, how dare we condemn ourselves? Think about it. You have no right to. You've been bought with the blood of Christ. How dare we condemn something that's been bought with the precious blood of Jesus? How dare we condemn other people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus? Start viewing yourself the way that Christ views you. If you always meditate on your sin, if you're always comparing yourself with others, if you're always wondering if you're loved, it's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you. It's only going to deepen your amnesia. Turn and gaze at him. Gaze at him. Turn and gaze at all the things that he has to offer. Turn and gaze at his glory and his beauty and his grace. Remember, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You're my beloved daughter. I'm so proud of you. David understands the danger of identity amnesia. He understands that when he's in danger or his family is in danger, I need to run to his temple and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and remember that they can take my life, they can take my possessions, but they can never take my identity because it was never in their hands to begin with. It's only in Christ. He's my light. He's my salvation. He's my stronghold. I'm going to run and I'm going to gaze at him because it's only then that I understand myself and my life the way it was meant to be understood. This is hard for me. If I'm just taking off the layers and being personal and just being real, this is hard for me. Because... The first thing that I think of when I walk into a room is, what do they think of me? I wonder, if, what have they said about me? Do they like the way that I'm dressed? Am, did I say something that made them think I was weird? I, I, maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. And, and I really just... Uh, <laughs> God has freed me from that. I don't need, listen, I don't need, I don't need people to like me. <laughs> I should be a nice person. I don't need you to like me because Christ loves me. Because Christ is proud of me. Because Christ views me as his son. Because when he looks at me, he doesn't see the dumpster fire of a mess I am. He sees his son's perfection. He loves us. And I don't want to skip over a, a part of this scripture that I think is really important in the terms of suffering. Because it says in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. My friends, we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. Christ was the ultimate sufferer and if we have his identity, we're going to suffer. I believe suffering is just an opportunity for us to choose Christ. In my opinion, that's grace. I get a choice to choose to be like Christ. How awesome is that? We're given the privilege to suffer with him. Do you realize, and I mean really, how selective we can be? If we're not careful, we can skip right over this. And you see a significant number of our brothers and sisters are suffering greatly, yet American Christianity tries to convince us that mm, if you've got all this figured out and you're all in control and you have everything buttoned down and if you're living the triumphant life, You've done a good job. That's never been true. 
Yes, we do live a triumphant life. Yes, we do have this amazing stuff and everything that God has to offer. But we will go through hardship. And that's why continuing on, he says in verse 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are, wor- are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That's next week. He's saying, look, your hardship and your suffering, they don't even scratch the surface of this. They don't even compare to the glory of God, to what is in you. In China, they... Um, when the new government came in and Mao Zedong came into came in to lead China, he wanted Christianity just wiped out. He wanted it gone. He wanted all of Christianity wiped out of mainland China. So we started. So they started burning churches, burning businesses, killing people, persecuting people. You name it, they did it. Fast forward to now, and guess what? The church in China is more vibrant than ever. It's more vibrant than ever. People are coming to learn and know about Jesus and live it. Now that doesn't mean that we invite persecution, but I really think that we should take it seriously when he says to suffer with him. So I'm going to give you some homework. Okay, get out your notepad and your pens. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm saying. There's going to be a quiz next week. I'm going to give you four words, okay, four words that I want you to remember that'll help apply what we've learned today. First one is gaze. Gaze. Gaze on the Lord. Gaze at his beauty. When you're filling your mind with only his goodness and grace, it's really hard to get discouraged. Evan, I don't know how to do that. How do I gaze at the Lord? Open your Bible. Open your Bible, go to like Isaiah 40 and just bask in how awesome God is. Or maybe go to the last couple of chapters of Job and just read about how God formed the foundations of the earth and he created Leviathans and all these big mighty things. Just bask in how awesome he is. Or go to Ephesians 1 and just read and just bask in how gracious he is. Number two, remember. Remember this truth. Remember this. The Bible never just defines who God is. It redefines who you are. It redefines who you are. Number three, rest. You need to rest in the Lord. Don't rest because people like you or because you have things under control. Rest. Rest because of how God views you. I don't need to chase things anymore. Rest because grace has connected you to our beautiful Father and that frees you from ever again having to look for your identity elsewhere. Your identity is settled, done, period. It's over, it's yours. His holiness, his perfection is in you. Rest in that. Listen, this one is going to be the hardest. It's hard for Americans to rest. Rest in the satisfaction and the wholeness that he provides. And lastly, act. Go out and live. Go be who you are. You are a son and a daughter of the living, holy king, the holy of holies, whose perfection is in you. A perfect king made made a house in you. Go be that person. When you mess up, confess, turn, and be who you are. When you mess up, confess, turn, and be who you are. When you mess up, turn, confess, and be who you are. It's a lifelong endeavor. It's a lifelong thing based not on your righteousness or your achievements or your possessions or relationships, but just because you're a child of God. The ultimate purpose of God's work in our lives is our sanctification. Basically, that's a fancy word that means God's working in our lives and our growth to be more like Jesus all the time. 
And what better way to make you more like Christ than to literally put him in you and give, replace your old identity with his. I, hopefully, if you have a family, you tell them you love them, right? I love you, like, you know, when they're going to work or they're going to school or whatever. Say, I love you. See you later today or, you know, whatever. I've begun to say something a little bit differently, though. To my family, to my wife, to my kids, and those whom I'm really, really, really close to, my family, I say, hey, I love you. Not because of anything you've done, but just because you're mine. You're mine. And that's what Christ, I believe, wants to remind you of today, that he loves you, not just because of anything you've done, but because he's your, you are his. He's pleased with you. Loves you so dearly. He's glad that, he's a part, that you're a part of the family. You're adopted. Stop looking for things to give you satisfaction and wholeness when you have satisfaction and wholeness. Rest in the one who bought you with his blood, who set you free and gave you his righteousness. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, thank you for this time. Thank you, thank you, thank you for adopting us. When we decided to accept you into our lives, Lord, you adopted us. You made us whole. You gave us a seat at the table. And not only a seat at the table, you gave us an inheritance of heaven. And you love us, not because of anything we do, but just because we belong to you. We're covered in your blood. And Lord, I know that there are probably people in this room who don't have that, who don't know you, who don't have that identity, who, never, who don't know if they've been adopted into your family. So if that's you this morning, no one's looking around. If you're in this room and you go, you know what, Evan? I don't think I've been adopted into God's family. I want that. I want to have a seat at the table. I want to have an eternal inheritance. If that's you this morning, or if you're watching online, or if you're at Jeffco Jail, listen, no one's looking around, but would you just do something for me? Would you just pop your hand up? I want that. I want to be a part of God's family. If that's you this morning, would you just pop your hand up? Thank you. Listen, I'm going to pray and I want you to, if, if, if that's you this morning and you want to accept Christ into your life, just listen, there's nothing magical about this prayer. You're not going to spread angel wings and become perfect, but guess what? You'll be a part of the family. So repeat this after me. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for adopting me. Thank you for loving me for who I am. I accept you into my heart today. And I dedicate my life to you. Help me to be more like your son every day. In your name we pray, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. <laughs>